2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore power to the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi, and also King David dedicated to the Lord. Um, sorry. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Suriah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Kerithites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Father, we ask now that as we uh, gather together to listen to you speak to us through your words, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open up our eyes to understand uh, exactly who you are, exactly what you're saying to us, and how it points to our good, victorious King Jesus, in whose name we pray and ask. Amen. We're continuing our series in Second Samuel, where we've been hearing God making promises. He has been making the most wonderful promises to his people and to the king of his people. Generous promises about his kingdom and what life in his kingdom will be like. So a few weeks ago in chapter 7, we heard God say these words. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as of formerly. Now, if promises like that are a sample 
of what life in God's kingdom looks like, that is a very, very appealing sample for his people. We have to understand that God's people in the days of 2 Samuel are beset by their enemies, threatened, quite literally, on every side. The surrounding nations do not like God's people. They do not like God's promises. They do not like God's king. And they do not like God himself. And they stand in staunch, violent, sneering opposition to all of the above. They have plagued, they have slaughtered, they have kidnapped God's people for generations, burning cities to the ground, offering no respite, no peace. And it's right into the heart of that that God promises his people a place. It's right into the heart of that situation that God promises his people peace. And these promises have strong echoes of words that God spoke to his people through Abraham, right the way back at the start of God's history with those who are his. So the reiteration of these promises in 2 Samuel 7 show us that God hasn't changed his mind, he hasn't changed his mission, he will give his people a land, he will make his people a blessing to the nations rather than the strife and the war that they encounter. These promises are incredible promises if God can and God will fulfill them. And in fact, they are cruel promises if God will not or cannot fulfill them. So the question that looms at the start of chapter 8 is the question that you have on your service sheet in front of you. Will God's kingdom come? Is God able and is God willing to keep the pledges that he made to his king, to keep the pledges that he made to his people? Will God's kingdom overcome the forces, the nations that are viciously determined to stop it? from coming. And before chapter 8 begins to answer that question for us, we have to understand that these are actually huge questions for us to ask this evening. As God's people gather here and gather across the world in whatever format that may be these days, God's word to his people, his promises point forwards to a time when we too will be in a place that he gives us, a new earth, a renewed earth, where we too will finally taste peace, peace from the enemies that viciously oppose God's kingdom today. And those enemies, we're not talking about a nation, we're not talking about a people group, but we are talking about the forces that stand against God, stand against his king, stand against his people, and stand against his promises. Sin, death, Satan. These are enemies that, frankly, we are as unable to counter on our own as God's people are unable to counter their enemies in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 
we are as surrounded by God's enemies today as God's people were surrounded by his enemies 3,000 years ago when these words were written. So for us, let's ask the same question. Will God's kingdom come? Even when it looks so weak, so frail, and so helpless. And our chapter this evening is, in many ways, a very, very simple chapter. It's one which answers that question, that very question, with a simple but resounding yes. Throughout the chapter that Matt read for us, you see a a series of battles against nations that have often conquered God's people time and time again, except this time, the results are very, very different. The chapter reads like one of those compilation clips that you see on YouTube of a a sports team successfully completing a season by going 38 matches unbeaten, or a compilation clip of a boxer's successive knockout punches in successive matches. We're supposed to understand very, very clearly from 2 Samuel chapter 8 that God keeps his promises to his people through his victorious king. God keeps his promises to his people through his victorious king. So in verse 1, David defeats the Philistines and subdues them, taking Methagamah, one of their key cities, out of their hands. And in verse 2, David defeats the Moabites, putting two-thirds of them to death, sparing one-third, who become servants to God's king, despite a life of hostility and hatred against him. David then defeats Zobah in verse 3, taking from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And it's worth pointing out here that chariot horses would have served as the war machine of a nation. Think tanks and planes nowadays. And David hamstrings them all, quite literally crippling their war efforts, forcing them into defeat. And even when the Syrians try to help out, even when the nations gather together to oppose God's king, verses 5 and 6, David strikes them down. And then again in verse 13, we read that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. We're not told how many men made up David's army. We're not told how long these battles lasted. And that is because our focus is supposed to be on something else. So in verse 6 and verse 14 we read, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And if you were to look at all of these countries that are are mentioned in the passage, if you were to look at all of these countries and nations on a map, you would see that they totally surround Israel. They totally surround God's people. And there is finally, at long last, At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, 360 degree peace. There is finally 
a 363 degree end to their hostility and to their threats. The enemies of God's people are defeated, they are subdued, some of them even mercifully spared to serve the king instead. God has kept his promise. He has kept his promise of a place and of peace through his victorious king. That prospect of God's people in God's place, under God's peace, looks more likely than ever. And it also leads to God's king being recognized. Every single knee bows before the king, but some knees bow willingly. As the wealth of the nations is brought into Jerusalem, one king recognizes David's victories. And rather than joining the forces that oppose David, Toy sends his son, verse 10, to bless him. We've never met Toy before. We'll never see him again, not in God's word. Yet in so many ways, in so many ways, his cameo appearance here is a simple yet hugely important model of what the kings of the earth ought to do, ought to have done when they hear and meet the king of God's people. See, as God fulfills his promises to his people, the wealth of all the nations will unavoidably be offered as tribute to God's kingdom. But it is avoidable to do so as an enemy of God's king. See, just as King Toy did to David, the nations are invited to recognize God's king, recognize the God that gives him victory, and bless him as a friend, welcomed into his presence. And we too are invited towards the end of the chapter as it concludes to recognize the king through whom God keeps his promises. We read that David reigns over all Israel in verse 15. And the second half of that verse literally reads, David did justice and did equity to all his people. And many in verses 16 to 18 are serving the nation in a variety of different roles, administering that justice, administering that equity as commanders, recorders, secretaries, priests. And so we arrive at the end of the chapter and we smile in wonder, thinking God really did make it happen. He really did exactly what he said he would do. And so we recognize that through the victories of his king, his people have a place. We recognize that through his king and the victories of his king, his people have peace. God was willing, God was able. God had not forgotten, God was not defeated. He did keep his words to his people. And this truly is a high point for God's people and a high point for God's promises. My trust, my confidence in God's word rises 
as I read a chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 8. My, my trust and my confidence in God's king rises as I read a chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 8. He has fulfilled exactly what he set out to do. But there are a few moments in this chapter where we ever so slightly frown. King David makes a few, I'm going to call them strange moves. He makes a few strange moves throughout this chapter. The first is in verse 2, where he makes the Moabites lie down on the ground. Yes, there is justice. Yes, there is judgment. But the arbitrary nature of it, well, that doesn't quite sound like the sort of thing that God's king would do. And the second thing is in verse 4, where he keeps enough horses for 100 chariots rather than completely disarming Zobah. So yes, the war efforts of those nations are disabled, but they're not completely disarmed. In fact, God has explicitly told his king not to collect horses. The king of God's people doesn't need them. He doesn't need a fast and furious war machine. Not when he has the Lord fighting for him. So these are strange moves that King David makes. It is still very much a high point for God's people. Make no mistake about it. And it is a high point for the fulfillment of God's promises. But we're just starting to see a few cracks beginning to show. A few worrying signs are beginning to emerge. We're perhaps beginning to see and understand that King David might be a victorious king. And he might be a recognized king by the nations, one way or another. But he might not be the king that God's people ultimately need. That king will be born 1,000 years after King David. These verses burst with the pregnant promise of fulfilled promises and victorious battles through our King Jesus. See, so much of what we see in this chapter is exactly what God promises to do when King Jesus returns someday in the future. God promises that King David, King Jesus rather, will bring us the victory, will bring us the justice, will bring us the righteousness that we so desperately need and crave. God promises that King Jesus will give us, will win for us a place where the nations will bring their wealth as tribute to the Lord and his anointed king, where his people will be disturbed by violence no more as of the former days, where God will wipe the tear from every single eye of those who are there. God promises us that his king, Jesus, will win victory over our enemies, over sin, over death, over Satan, over the forces of evil in this world that fight tooth and nail to denounce the gospel, dilute God's words, discourage God's people. So if God can do what he does here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, with an imperfect King David, just wait until you see what he will do in his perfect King Jesus. If you think the defeat of these nations is impressive, 
Just wait until you see the empty tomb 1,000 years later, our sins washed clean. That is where we see the greatest victory of our perfect king. See, the fulfillment of God's promises is good news. It's good news of victory for God's people who so often look crushed, who individually taste failure in our daily walk with the Lord as we try to live out and try to speak what it's like to live in his kingdom. The fulfillment of God's promises means good news of justice for God's people, justice in this country, justice around the world. And so often God's people taste that injustice in speech, in action, or in other ways. And the fulfillment of God's promises through the victorious king means good news of righteousness, righteousness for God's people, realizing that there is nothing within us that we could ever do to merit or to deserve being a part of this victory that our king has won for us. And yet, it is ours. And it's for that reason, it's the only reason that the Apostle Paul can tell the church in Ephesus, for example, to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, to take our stand against the devil's schemes, to struggle against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ours is armor for the battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said that he will deliver us safely to the golden shore. 2 Samuel chapter 8 shows us that God's people do not have a meek or a feeble king that just rolls over at the first sign of a fight. 2 Samuel chapter 8 shows us that we can struggle and fight against these forces that I have mentioned because we know, we know that ultimately King Jesus has and will defeat and subdue them. Even if, from an earthly perspective, they vastly outnumber us and they've got a pretty good track record against us. And so as I draw to a close this evening, let me ask us to ponder two questions as we finish. First, as you listen this evening in person, which side of this king are you on? 2 Samuel chapter 8 makes it clear that we will bend the knee before our God and our king. But 2 Samuel chapter 8 makes it clear that we need not do so as his enemy. There is no middle ground. We will either unwillingly bow or willingly bless. We are either staring down the barrel of the king's justice or we bring him our own lives to dedicate to him. And standing in opposition to God's king is a terrible and terrifying place to be. And so my plea with you this evening is that if you have not yet done so, turn to the victorious king of God's people. Acknowledge that through him, God will fulfill his promises of a place and a peace for his people forever.
eternal rest from the sin and everything else that plagues us in this world and to ask him for his mercy, which he offers us all. See, King Jesus will and does show us an even better, an even greater allegiance than David showed Toy. Jesus will show us his favor and compassion forever, if that is the side of him on which we are to be found. Which side of the king are you on? The second question is this. If you sit here this evening and you are one of God's people, if you do bow the knee to King Jesus, if you do willingly submit to his rule, if you will receive the full measure of God's fulfilled promises, if you know that your sins are forgiven, if you know that death is not the end because of his victories over his enemies and ours, have you lost trust? Have the enemies of God's people, have the enemies of God's promises, have the enemies of God's king convinced you that they are victorious and his king is defeated? I think it is incredibly easy to feel that way. And I think I feel it every single day. I think the sin in my own heart and the chorus of voices that try to tell me repeatedly, Jesus is not the king. God's promises are left unfulfilled. Those voices, that sin often leads me to despair. 2 Samuel chapter 8 will not leave me in despair. This passage shows me, it shows every single one of us in this room, that there will come a time, there will come a day when God's enemies are silenced. Victory is his, and then in his generosity, he extends that victory to every single one of us. He wins the battles we cannot. He fights the enemies we cannot. And wonderfully, you and I can read and reread the pages of his words. We can read and reread of his victory over his enemies every single day of our lives. We can look forward to the total, final defeat of sin, Satan, and death. And as we read about this, our trust is replenished, our faith is restored, if not grown. And so my plea to you is to regularly dwell on his victories, regularly ponder the way in which he has conquered the people, the forces that we simply could not. The gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. So will God's kingdom come? Yes. Not through King David ultimately, but he points forward and this chapter points forward to another king. Will God's kingdom come? Yes, through his victorious, just, righteous King Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer as we finish. Father, we thank you so much that through your king, you have won victory over 
the forces and the enemies that oppose us and oppose you and oppose your kingdom and oppose your promises. Father, please help us to understand the full implications of that. Please help us, Father, to rejoice. Help us to know with certainty that our eternity is secure, not because of what we have done, not because of any victories we think we have won, but because of the way that you have conquered sin and death. Help us, Father, to rejoice in this. Help us to share this wonderful good news with as many people as we possibly can, so that they too may come to bless the King and experience the promises that you have made. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen.